1: Johnny, I'm really excited about this episode because I can say with 100% honesty that our guest changed our lives.
2: That is right. He certainly did. And the way he goes and puts these lessons and parables just makes it a joy to read his books. His business books are hands down the books that I recommend to
1: friends because they're so easy to read and so impactful. In fact, his book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, changed our team and helped us make major decisions with business partners. So we're so excited to have him on the show today. This is the Art of Charm podcast, a show where we bring you actionable tips and strategies on how to supercharge your social skills and turn small talk into smart talk, surrounding yourself with an army of high status individuals to grow your social capital.
2: Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum each and every week.
1: That's what we do here at The Art of Charm. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. Last month, we dropped a free training to help you discover your core values.
2: That's right. We have a lot of successful people on the show over the last 13 years. Kobe Bryant, Sugar Ray Leonard, Tim Ferriss, David Goggins, Gary V, just to name a few.
1: And what do they all have in common? They live a value-driven life that's helped them reach their incredible successes. They define their values, channel them daily, and communicate them clearly to everyone, which is why when you think about those guests, you know exactly what their life is about. So we put together a free training to help you do exactly that.
2: Video one is all about defining those core values once and for all. Video two is about living those values on an everyday basis and video 3 teaches you how to communicate them. So check out the absolutely free training at theartofcharm.com/panda. That's panda as the panda bear, P A N D A. Or text panda to
1: 16785067543. Again, go right now for this free training before we take it down at theartofcharm.com/panda. Or text P A N D A to one six seven eight five zero six seven five four three. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Let's kick off the show today. We're talking with Patrick Lencioni. He's the author of a great many books that educate leaders on how to make their organizations healthier, and not just in terms of profit, but in terms of fostering a cooperative work environment. Now, if you're thinking, "Well, I'm not in a leadership position. This isn't for me," AJ, well, don't hit the skip button just yet. What we're discussing with Patrick are life skills are going to help you become a high-value person in whatever role you're in in your work life or social life. His books, like The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, are incredible bestsellers as well as The Ideal Team Player, which has had a huge influence on the way we do things here at The Art of Charm. He has a great new book out, The Motive, Why So Many Leaders Abdicate Their Most Important Responsibilities. And we loved it. Thank you for joining us, Pat. We're excited to have you on the show. Johnny and I are huge fans of yours. And in fact, one of your books, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, changed our business trajectory. And it was actually recommended to us by a former business partner who wanted us to learn some lessons and potentially kick someone out of the company that he was unhappy with. And funny enough, we read the book Mm -hmm. through some self-reflection, realized our own dysfunction, started working on them. And he actually was the only one who refused to work on his dysfunction. And we were forced to get rid of him in a very wild way. But obviously, over the years, we've interviewed tons of people who've written business books and your books still stand above. And what's so fascinating to me is the format of choosing parables to share these lessons. How did you decide, one, to really dig into leadership and change businesses, and then two, write in a format that is so different from other business books out there?
0: You know, the, I love the question. And I think both of them go back to me being a little kid in Bakersfield, California, where I grew up. And two things happened. One, and, and probably about the same age, I'm guessing it was like when I was eight or nine years old. So my dad who I loved. God rest his soul. He would come home from work and complain about management at his company. I didn't know what that meant, but my dad was a great guy. He was successful at what he did, but he was always a little angst about the way management treated him. And I remember going, I love my dad. I don't know what management is. I'm not even sure what that word means, but I don't think people should come home from work frustrated. And I also watched the Waltons, (laughs) which was a TV show. You guys might be a little too young for the Waltons. You've probably seen it on like TV land or something. (laughs) And, um, it was a show about this guy who's a writer and the show was framed him writing in his journal about this family back in the West Virginia or something in the early 1900s or late 1800s. And I remember thinking, I don't know what a writer is exactly, but I like what that guy does. And I want to do that one day too. So fast forward through the rest of my life, I I was always interested in writing and I was, I, I kept noticing the, the, my dad's business thing. I go to college down in Los Angeles where you guys are from and I took a screenwriting class, my senior year. I think, much to my father's chagrin, because he's like, "You should study accounting and computers and and but I was really interested, and I got my first job as a management consultant. I moved up here to San Francisco area, and I remember going to work and helping these companies and thinking, "They don't get it. It's about the human things they They're really smart and they're failing because they don't know how to talk to each other and organize themselves and have honest conversations. And I would say that. And the other people at the firm would go, we don't get paid to do that. That's not what we do. Just crunch the numbers. And it was at that time that I said, that's what I want to do. And, and then fast forward, probably five years later, I came up with a management theory based on these CEOs I was watching. I didn't have my own firm yet. And I came up with this theory and somebody said, you need to write a book about that theory because that really works. And I thought, man, I don't want to write a, one of those business books that nobody re- reads because I never finished the business books. I'd read the first two chapters. I'd go, okay, flip through it and be done. So I said, I'm going to write a story that people will actually enjoy reading. They'll get the theory through it. They'll finish it because they're going to want to know how it ends. And maybe they'll actually learn more that way. And so I did that. You should just know I didn't have a publisher. I didn't know anybody was going to read this. But I loved writing so much that I did that, and it struck a chord with people. And then the publisher said, write another book. And I kept thinking, I think I'm done. And then I'd come up with a, Like, wait a second. I just noticed this other thing. And so that's why I write fiction, because of John Boy Walton and my screenwriting class. And I love to write dialogue. And my interest in, in this whole idea of management and culture comes from the fact that when I went into the working world, nobody was paying attention to the, what I thought was the most important thing. So that's a long answer to a short question. I hope that's okay.
2: Well, I think one of the things that makes the parables work so well is because it's a story, all the characters, there's a, I guess, to lack of a better word, there just seems like an, there's an innocence about them because it's a story. It's a parable. Right. So that you're able to then see yourself in each one of these characters if it's, going to be, you know, Kevin Cruz's leadership book, then you're, you're automatically see yourself as a certain role. And you're sort of rigid in that idea of who you are and your place, in your business, where the parables are, they're fun. The characters seem innocent and because it's fun, you can mix and match. And I think that's the beauty of it. And that's why it works so well.
0: I love what you said because I write the characters So that they're relatable Mm -hmm. and the bad, if there's a bad character, if you will, you feel for, you feel for him and you identify with him. And if there's a good character, he, he or she has flaws and you can relate to them. And I love what you said, because it's not like I'm just that person. I'm the good character and I'm not preaching to people that way. I'm saying human beings are inherently messy and flawed (laughs) and well-intentioned. And so unlike a Marvel comic book where this is evil and this is good, I'm trying to say we human beings are messy. And I love when people read my books and they'll go, oh my gosh, the troubled character is the one I can relate to. I need to change my career. Yeah, And so, so what you said is exactly right. I want people to relate to it. The fiction I write, we call them parables and fables, but they're, they're, it's kind of edgy and we want people to go, yeah, I've heard that same comment in a meeting. I can relate to that. It's not like a genie flies out of a computer and gives you advice. You know, these are like real people having real conversations. And my most recent book is the edgiest one I've written so far, I think. So you
1: got us hanging on the edge of our seats. What is this grand theory of management that you cracked the code with and and led to the, the writing of these
0: books? Okay, so I think the best way to describe it is this, you guys. There's two things that people need to be successful in a business. One is you have to be smart. That's intellectual stuff. Like, do we have the right strategy? Are we in the right business? Do we have the right marketing? Do we have the right technology? All that stuff. On the other hand, you also have to be healthy, which means, do we have the right culture? Is there cohesiveness among the leaders? Are we clear? Forget if we have the right answer. Are we on the same page around an answer? Do we communicate enough with each other and with with the people in the organization? And have we put just enough structure in place to keep all this together? So it's smart and it's healthy. 95% of the attention that most leaders give in companies, if not 99, is around smart. That's what business schools teach. That's what the Wall Street Journal and the Harvard Business Review focuses on is what do I know? The healthy side, which is the behavioral, it does this, is this functional? Are we honest? Do we wrestle with decisions? It affects the smart stuff. It's not touchy-feely. But without the health of an organization, you don't get to tap into most of your smarts. You know, one of the many companies we get to work with, and I'm very fortunate, is Southwest Airlines. They are not smarter than Delta and United and Continental or whatever they are. They've all merged and stuff. They are healthier. And as a result of that, they make smarter decisions. So really analytical people will go, well, they were brilliant in the way they did that. Well, I know the executives, they sit around a room and they have honest conversations and they say, what should we do here? And because they're transparent and because they're honest and because they're willing to go there, they look a lot smarter than people who probably have higher IQs and SAT scores and GPAs from better schools. And the people at Southwest just keep it simple because they're, they have a real culture. So smart and healthy. And what I said is we have to help companies become healthier. They're all smart. We, in this era of ubiquitous information and the internet, everybody knows enough. I've never, you guys, I've never gone into a company and walked away and thought these leaders are just too dumb. They don't understand <laughs> Never. I've never said, man, they're dumb. Because in this day and age, everybody knows enough. I walk into many and say they're too dysfunctional to tap into that knowledge.
2: I, I love that. And one of the things in our work and and us doing some new some new corporate training and and just with how prevalent ideology is now, is that all companies have this culture. And a lot of times people don't even think about it. They th- it's like an after bit where their primary objective is to get hired by said company, Google or Facebook or whatever it might be. And it's like, have you ever thought if you would fit in there with your temperament and they're like, well, that doesn't matter. I'll figure that out once I'm in. it's like, no, I don't think you understand (laughs) because this culture possibly could go against your temperament. And if that's the case, you are not going to have a good time. And no matter how, hard you might try, you're you're not going to be able to fit in. In fact, every day is going to be frustrating to you.
0: Yes. So I, I'll tell you a story of how I learned that lesson. <laughs> and I have two boys that are seniors in college that are getting ready to join the workforce this summer. And so I tell them about this and their friends too. And and granted, recruiters and, and colleges trying to play up the company name and whether they're oh, famous yeah. and all that kind of stuff, which is so dumb. So when I was a uh, a couple years out of college, I got a job offer from a company that I won't name the company, but it remi- it rhymes with schmoracle. <laughs> okay. okay. And so some guys wanted to hire me there. And so everybody that got hired there at the time, there's only a couple thousand employees at the time, had to interview with the same guy there. And his job was to see if you were a cultural fit. So the people that wanted to hire me there prepped me for the interview so I could fake it. Oh boy. And get through the interview Because the culture there was, we got to make sure these people are appropriately confident and cocky. And they're not afraid to deal with internal politics and even kind of like rudeness. So they prepped me. I went into the interview. I faked it. I got through. And I was like, man, I'm glad they told me that. And then I was like, wait, I have to work here now. (laughs) (laughs) So I lasted two and a half years. They were painful. They turned out to be productive because I learned a lot about company culture but I thought why would you want to fake it that would be like saying should I marry this woman well she doesn't like who I am somebody tell me what she really likes I'll fake it then we'll get married wait I have to live with her it's like we should really ask ourselves do I want to work in that company culture and not every company is for everyone no And and just because it's famous or makes a lot of money doesn't mean it's a good fit for you
1: That's
2: dot com slash charm. Go to com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify.
1: That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175
2: countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify.
1: no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. A lot of us don't realize how much that culture influences us later in our careers. So this business partner that we were frustrated with, you know, he came from a finance background. And I remember him telling a story of, hey guys, I was in a meeting where I had a binder chucked at my head because I, I miscalculated some numbers. And that's why I have this aggression towards you. And we're like, but we don't want that in our culture. We don't want anyone throwing anything. We want to be able to have open dialogue without fisticuffs. And he's like, but this is how I worked before. And this is now my culture. So it imprints, especially, you know, seniors in college, people who are just starting out in their career, that environment, that nature nurture, certainly your temperament comes in, but you're going to fit in to that culture and you're going to take on the good parts. And you're also going to take on the warts.
0: You know, when, so my first job was with a management consulting firm called Bain & Company, which is very high end, but it was, it was kind of brutal. I will tell you, they threw like 20 of us um, college grads, said, you've won the lottery. Here's your job. You're going to make a lot of money, but you're going to work all the time, and you're going to compete with one another, and eventually, we're going to weed it down to like six of you, which sucked, and then I went to Oracle when I realized, oh, this isn't for me, and I, I had that experience. Then I got hired by a company, a technology company that was, actually had a really good culture, the founders were really kind and they were customer focused. And they, they said, you don't have to defend yourself against other people. We work together, but the founder of the company said, but we're going to have to detox you, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> we, said, we know, we know you're going to like it, but you we're going to have to teach you that you don't have to watch your back. You don't have to guard what you're going to say. You can be transparent and open and it's going to work fine. And it was wonderful once I got used to it, but you're right. My first two companies. And by the way, that's why I'm in this business. Thank the Lord that I did it. My first two companies were crazy cultures, and that taught me that culture matters, and that culture is not some esoteric thing. It's really, what does the founder, and what do the leaders believe, yeah. and how do they run the organization? So that's that's how I got in the business. So even though they were painful, I'm, I thank God for it.
1: So a lot of our audience is a little bit younger in their career. They're hoping to move into that leadership role to really influence culture, what tips do you have or strategies do you have to find the right culture fit when you are being recruited and they are putting on the show to get you to come on board? Because we all know that these companies, when they're in their recruiting efforts, they're not necessarily being honest about their culture.
0: Absolutely. In fact, they have to market themselves as all things to all people. If, they're, if it's a good company, though, the very best companies, and it's not black and white or binary, but the very best companies are not afraid to market what they really are. Like Southwest Airlines, how I first got involved with them is we helped them codify their culture. They already had a great culture. But they said, if you have a servant's heart and a warrior's spirit and a fun loving, self deprecating attitude, you're going to be a good fit here. But if you don't, please don't come to work here. You're going to hate it. And we're probably not going to enjoy you very much. So when they interview people, they actually push you to see. Like one of the things Southwest does is years ago, they would hire, they would bring in pilots for interviews. And these are some very buttoned down, they're flying planes worth $100 million. And they would make them change halfway through the interview into shorts, khaki shorts in their suit. And some of the pilots would go, this is juvenile, I'm out of here. And they'd go, okay. yeah. See, if you can't laugh at yourself and have some fun, you're not going to fit here. Where other companies are saying, what do you believe in? Yeah, we believe in that too. Don't, if a company can't tell you what they're not and they don't really have a a real perspective, they're probably looking at you as, as a commodity and they're trying to convince you. Find out what great question would be, who would not be a good fit here? And I don't mean like, well, they'd be mean and rude. And I mean like, what person with good qualities wouldn't fit in here? And what's interesting is when I go back to Oracle, even though it wasn't for me, had they just said, hey, listen, it's pretty political here. It's pretty competitive internally. If it would bug you if somebody who you think is on your team actually stabbed you in the back a little bit, then you – and if you you don't have a stomach for that, you probably shouldn't work here because that's just kind of how it is. We believe in kind of a – it's a little bit of Lord of the Flies here. (laughs) Well, I'm not a – that would have been a beautiful thing to say, and the right people would have gone, yes, Yes. bring it on. And so I guess if a company cannot be honest about the challenges of their culture – then you probably know something's wrong. It's like if you went on a date and said, well, tell me your worst qualities. And they say, well, I'm just so conscientious and loving that sometimes that's, you know, it's like, no, no, tell me your worst qualities. If a person t- doesn't know what their worst qualities are, then they probably, it's a red flag.
2: You know, this r- reminds me a bit about the person that we're speaking about as he was coming from that culture and what he wanted to implement, or at least it seemed to be the, the way our our Monday morning meetings were going, was he wanted to have a roundtable discussion of Game of Thrones and what happened and the the playing off Machiavellian strategizing and like, like,
1: politicking. Oh,
2: like, we don't. This is why we're, we, we're not
1: interested in that. We're not
2: interested <laughs> in this. And in fact, like for myself, and as you were just stating about about working in that environment, it's like I know for myself, I wanted to be obsessed and put all of my attention on what I'm doing and the, and the work and the results that I am trying to get, not have to look to see who's trying to pull the rug out from under me as well. Exactly. I mean, and granted, there are people who seriously thrive in that. Um, and, 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 and that's, and that's great, but, but, Certainly, we didn't need it in in our podcast startup.
1: (laughs) Well, one of the other strategies that my fiance, Amy, has taught me is reaching out to the people who did your role at that company but moved on in their career. You can find them on LinkedIn. They're easy to get a hold of now and ask, why'd you leave? And just understand, what. well, I got more money at Facebook. That's one thing. Or, you know what? I hated working weekends. I hated the – they demanded 14-hour days even though they told me when I started that, oh, I'm going to be able to travel and it's great. You can get that feedback from the people who left your role. They will tell you right. most of the time on a LinkedIn message, well, this is what I didn't like.
0: What we need to be able to say is, hey, if if you like that, then you definitely shouldn't work here because we're not like that. We're not judging you and saying you're a bad person, nope. but we are saying you're a bad fit for what we're trying to do. Alan Mulally was the guy, the CEO who turned the Ford Motor Company around a, year, a few years back. Amazing story, like took over the DMV of automotive stuff, didn't take any money from the government, changed the culture. Now they're struggling again because he's been gone for a while. But the point is he would go to people in the company and say, this is the new culture. I really like you, and this is how we're going to do this. And if they were violated, he'd go up to them and he'd say, hey, you know, you're violating the culture, and that's okay. We could still be friends, but if you keep doing that, you just shouldn't work here because it's not going to be good for you. And he had to fire very few people in turning that company. A ton of people left. Not because he sat in a dark room and decided who to fire and who to keep or who he should, but because he just confronted them about that behavior's not okay. And you have a choice to make. The Machiavellian stuff, you can shed that, or you can lean into that and go someplace that appreciates it. But we don't. That shouldn't be a controversial conversation. That's actually an act of love to help that person avoid misery and
1: yourselves. And that is an important lesson that I actually took from the book of Five Dysfunctions because I realized that in myself, that I had this fear of conflict. And because I was the leader of the group, when there were these cultural issues, because I was afraid of having conflict over it, they festered and they continued to grow in the company. And then everyone was frustrated. So- Let's unpack for the audience what these five dysfunctions are because what I love about them, and now as Johnny said, that we've been doing corporate training, you see these patterns over and over and over again. And we all think we're special snowflakes and oh, our culture's different or our company's unique. But then you start looking and you're like, wait a second, (laughs) I'm a dysfunction. There's dysfunction. Okay, what can we
0: do to fix it? The first dysfunction on a team is the lack of trust, which sounds very obvious. But that's just, our people- on the team, capable of being vulnerable and saying, I don't know the answer. I think I screwed up. I need your help. You're actually smarter than I am at this. Can you teach me how to do that? Or I'm sorry, I was a jerk yesterday. Can they be emotionally buck naked? Trust is a function of knowing that the people sitting around the table are not gonna hide strengths or weaknesses, mistakes, successes. They're gonna come to the table and sit down and go, okay, I need your help. Or I'm I'm, a worry, I'm worried about something. They're gonna be honest. You can't trust somebody who can't be honest about who they are, warts and all. So that's the first dysfunction. And that's one of the most important things we do with executive teams, leadership teams, teams of any kind is we teach them how to be vulnerable to each other. Talk about who you are. And you know what they find? When they do that, it's like so liberating. They're like, you mean I can come to work and be fully myself? No, you have to be fully yourself because if you're not, people aren't gonna know how to act around you. So that's the first one, trust. The next one and trust enables the next one, which is if you trust each other, then and only then can you overcome the next dysfunction, which is the fear of conflict. Conflict on a team. Now, that doesn't mean they're throwing binders at each other. It means they if they disagree about anything important, they say so. And whether they're an Italian and Irish like me and they wave their hands and they yeah, yeah, yeah. or whether they're culturally Japanese or New York or L.A., you know, every culture has. But they're they're not holding back. They're saying, I disagree and here's why. And it's if we're, if we're uncomfortable, that's okay because we're pursuing the right answer or the truth. And that's good. But remember, you have to trust each other because if you don't trust each other, you're not vulnerable, conflict is bad. Then it becomes politics. So the first one is the lack of trust. The next one is the fear of conflict. Conflict allows us to overcome the third dysfunction, which is the the lack of commitment. People aren't going to commit to a decision if they didn't debate it. So if the three of us are sitting here and we run a business and we have to decide, are we gonna open a new office or launch a new podcast or whatever else? The only way for us to get to the point where we leave that meeting on the same page is if we push back on each other and we really air our differences. And people think they're doing a good thing on a team when they don't have conflict. What they're doing is they're making it impossible for people to commit. So the inability their unwillingness to commit is the third one.
2: And I, and I love this because what you were saying with this commitment of there should be some push-pull. The best argument should win. Everyone should come in and bring their idea in. And through that, there will be a decision made. And then everybody, if they've been heard and if they've given their best argument and we've all chosen through this meeting what our commitment is going to be, then we can all say that it was a successful meeting and we can all leave going i know what the plan is and i'm good with the plan exactly
0: but in that case the way you just described that in order to engage in that conflict though and make it productive you have to be vulnerable enough to to say maybe i'm wrong yeah oh yeah you're right oh that's a great point i hadn't thought of that but when a person comes to a meeting and says i'll engage in conflict and i will defend my answer and i will try to convince you regardless there's no trust there you're like i don't trust that they're vulnerable enough to admit that I a better idea than
1: there. We actually had fake commitment because we would end these meetings, everyone <laughs> would be on one page, and then a few months would go by, no, a few weeks even, and we'd find ourselves having the same argument over again, confronted right. with the same reasons that we already said were not reasons. And at that point, right. everyone else in the team can't commit because they're like, well, wait a second no. here. I don't know what direction I need to be rowing in because every time I thought we had commitment, I'm in another meeting where we're we're debating this again. Now it's one thing to come with new data, new facts. Okay, sure. traffic is here, conversion is there. We're seeing from customers their feedback is this, but to just stick to your guns, wait until there's another opening in a couple meetings,
2: and then blast this, as Johnny says, play the same lick I, on the guitar. I have this this analogy that I use because I'm I'm a musician in my life before all this, and and with the art of charm was playing in bands. And oh, you look like you were in a band. Yeah, now I get it. It all makes so, sense. Yeah, and when we would all come in with different riffs and ideas for, for new tunes. And you would hash them out in the room. And the best ones won. Now, I had... But there was always one guy who, right. who week after week would bring in this same tired riff. And it's like, listen, for the last three weeks, we've jammed on that. It hasn't went anywhere. And... Quit forcing this riff, Could at least go home and try to change it up a bit. But to come in here with the same riff after we've already voted no several times, this is just redundant. And why are you trying to bully us in to just for us, if you, this idea, if you just keep bringing it up enough that we'll eventually just Gave. cave in, which was exactly the issue that we were having with our business partner. And I had brought up this, this analogy to AJ. I was like, I've, I've dealt with this before. This guy's waiting for us to just give up. Cave. <laughs> yeah. yeah." <laughs> and
0: that's why in, in a situation like that, what you have is a person who's not vulnerable enough to say, to celebrate like, hey, I'm wrong. Yeah. Hey, you guys were right. Hey, this riff sucks. You know what I mean? <laughs> that is a sign of, if no, if a person can't celebrate when they're wrong and celebrate when somebody shows them a better idea, that's a sign that they're not trustworthy because they're not vulnerable. They're insecure. And that's a deal
2: breaker. Well, one of the something else to go along with that is when you are able to admit defeat or that you've been bettered, the rift that your buddy has brought in is now rocking the room. And it's like when you can admit that and realize I have some work to do, So I'm going to go home and refine the things that I was working on. I certainly know for myself that there was a freeing moment of not having to be right all the time, and that collectively liberating. It is it is so liberating, and it's like, why wouldn't everyone else want this as well? However, it just shows you just how scared they are inside and how insecure and what what they're working through with themselves or not working through to prohibit themselves from from allowing themselves to do that.
0: So let's go back now and do the fourth and fifth dysfunction. So we talked about trust enables conflict. Conflict enables commitment. The reason why real commitment, not fake commitment, like, okay, I'll go along with it, but I don't really agree. I mean, like, we've had it out. I get it. We might not have agreed completely, but the leader broke the tie, and I understand why we were doing this. I'm in. I'm in. Yep. That enables the next and most difficult thing a team has to do, which is to hold people accountable. When you see somebody later on doing something that's not quite right, either they're backing off on that decision, or they're deviating from it, or their behavior just isn't aligned with what we're talking about, that's when a team has to be able to say, hey, dude, what's going on? That's not what we agreed on. That's the hardest thing for teams to do. And, it, and let me just tell you, it's an act of love to say to somebody in your band, like, hey, you keep missing that, that beat. Some people say, how can you say that to them? It's like, because I love them and I love the band and I got to tell them. And if some, an executive on your team or a team member in your workspace is doing something that's not in line with what you're doing, the best thing to do isn't go to the boss and rat them out quietly and say, don't tell them. I's just to go, hey, I thought we agreed on this. What's going on, man? And, and they go, well, thanks for telling me. I guess I'm kind of confused. Help me out. Sure. The best teams in the world do this. I love when I see a basketball team or a football team and a player goes to the other guys and goes, my bad. That was on me.
1: And this is what you were talking about earlier. It's having good intentions and understanding and assuming that other people have good intentions, right? That's exactly. where the love comes from. It's like, exactly. I am holding you accountable because we agreed on it. And I, I know you're not doing anything nefarious. You, you're trying, and I just want to make sure we're all trying on the same page.
0: Exactly. This is by far the lowest score. We have an online team assessment people take, and they get back to the triangle with all the colors on it, green, yellow, or red. This is the lowest average score. Because it's one thing for people to do all this. And when, when it comes to that moment where you go, oh, I have to go tell them it's not good enough. You know, we, have a, we did a podcast recently called That's Not Good Enough. Those are the four words that people have to say to one another more at work. It's not a mean thing. It's like, oh, that's not good enough. But people don't like to do that. No, people don't like to. So, so that's accountability. That's the fourth dysfunction. And the final dysfunction is just what we call the inattention to results. So it's the lack of accountability and then the inattention to results. Sometimes you have people on a team and the collective results of the team aren't really that important. It's just like, I kind of want my department to do well. You know, in a band it would be like, "Ah, oh, my guitar solo looked pretty good. I don't really care if the song is good, but I look good." <laughs> and it's like we have to say, "No, no, no. We are all about the collective good of the organization and the team." And too often you'll have a, a team member who's really all about my department and my staff and my budget. And it's like, "No, no, no. It's got to be the collective good of the team." So the dysfunctions are the, the overcoming the dysfunctions are build trust, engage in conflict, really commit to decisions, hold each other accountable, focus on the collective results of the team. And it might sound simple, but it takes work.
1: And for us, so we were given the book, all all of us in the leadership.
0: Yeah, I want to hear about this. This is wild.
1: And it was one of those moments where Johnny and I read the book and it it was such a great read and we put it down and immediately we started seeing stuff in ourselves so it raised my self-awareness. Right. I did not immediately, for whatever reason, and I'm, I'm, I know that people do this because this is where the other business partners slide. I was like, wow, you know what? My inability to deal with conflict is leading the team astray. And because of that, we don't have this commitment. I need to work on this. And Johnny that came to the table. And he was like, hey, you know what? I now see that there are dysfunctions here and I want to do better. Meanwhile, the guy who bought us the books, the business partner who bought us the books and handed us the books, sat in the meeting and called everyone else out on their dysfunction. Yeah. <laughs> and we were sitting there going, I don't think that's how the book was supposed to go. Like, let's <laughs> let's commit to working on on improving everybody. And he used it as an opportunity to sort of bully people. And we had to make a, a tough decision to to let him go, not a cultural fit. And that's the other thing that I think is, for me, and running the company and through my 20s and 30s now has been a really important lesson. It's like, it doesn't mean that person's a terrible worker, or a terrible person. No. They're just not a good fit for this team. Fit. You have skills, you have talents. You're going to go on to do amazing things. But what this team is focused on, what the culture we're striving for is, what our goals
2: are, they're not in alignment. And something else also want to-
0: He's going to be better off. You're going to be better off. Oh,
2: yeah. You know, something else I want to bring up, there were several people involved And what's funny about this is even going over this now, it's all coming back to me. And I'm laughing because the two people who decided, oh, here's where we can both grow are still here. And everyone else who was just freaking out or they're now gone. And part of this, so this, this idea of getting commitment and having some conflict and everyone putting their ideas on the table. Well, one person left because they saw it as AJ and I arguing But they didn't see it as working through to get the best ideas. And then of course, so that person is gone. And the other person was, well, this is all great and is good as long as you're all following along my ideas. They're like, okay, well, that's that's (laughs) not how this works either. And so now, you know, all these years later, it's like, well, yeah. And what is also great about this, and as I was mentioning earlier about how liberating this is, you know, a lot of these things with getting trust and and having some some the be- looking for the best ideas and then and then having the commitment after working that out of which one's the best and then having accountability to see these ideas through and and then looking at the results that is so much fun and oh. it's like oh and this is how this works and how could you not get excited about working in an environment like that
1: and that this is what I wanted to discuss now. And, and this is what's so key. It's like, okay, the realization, huge. But this is fixable too. Everything we're talking Absolutely. about here can be improved. So what advice do you have for someone who's in a leadership position, who has now realized that there are these dysfunctions on the team, they're part of
0: it, there are other team members who are part of it? Well, no matter what you think your issues are, and if you were to take the team assessment and you were to get green on trust and red on all the others, Start with trust. So whatever you think it is, anything you can do to build trust. And so like, so here's the, here's the exercises we actually use. You could go do these things right now. The first thing we do is like baby steps on vulnerability. We will sit around with an executive team and I do it with the executives of billion, multi-billion dollar companies and startups. And I do it with my kids, you know, lacrosse team, or, you know, any organization, churches, everybody else. The, I take, get the leaders together and I say, Tell us who you are. And here's what I mean by that. Tell us where you grew up, how many kids were in your family, and where you were in that order. And what was the most difficult challenge of your childhood, or not your inner childhood, just being a kid? And like 15 minutes later, because it goes fast, everybody's sitting there having just said, you know, here's where I grew up. And the, uh, we were really poor, or my dad died when I was young, or we moved all the time, whatever else. They all have amazing stories. And then I'm like, how many people knew all this? How many people learned something new? And every hand goes up and goes, I worked with you for four years. i never heard any of this. And all we've done is help them realize a little bit of vulnerability is actually a comforting thing. Suddenly they're kind of admiring each other going, wow, I had no idea you went through that as a kid. This is amazing. And then we go, okay, let's go a little deeper now. Let's take a tool like the Myers-Briggs. We go really fast. Let's figure out what your personality is. No judgment because they're all good. You know, you're all wired the way God wired you. It's all good. And we have, I did this with 19, 13 year olds the other day in my <laughs> office. My wife was with me. She goes, do their Myers-Briggs. And I'm like, I can't do their Myers-Briggs. I got 40, minutes." these kids were reading their one page type going, oh, I'm an ENTP. It says I move from one project to another and I don't finish. And it's like everybody in the room, the coach was taking pictures of the book. The kids <laughs> were like laughing and talking about it. Suddenly everybody in the room is now going, oh, I know your strengths. I know your weaknesses. Can we call you on that? And they're like, of course, this is who I am. So in a matter with an executive team, in a matter of like two hours, they are having conversations about one another's relative strengths and weaknesses and inviting it and feeling like they're helping each other. Whereas if they had done that the day before, it would have felt judgmental and it would have felt risky. So we allow them to be more vulnerable and do trust in a safe way. And then we teach them how to have conflict. So if you could just start with trust and just say, now tell me your conflict profile. And one person says, well, when I was a kid, we used to fight all the time. Another one says, well, I never saw my parents argue. Well, in my, co- in my country, to disagree with authority is, and then we go, okay, let's talk about how we're gonna meet in the middle here and figure out, have a good way of it. You can do this. In three hours, a team can develop much greater trust and start to engage in conflict. We have a book called Overcoming the Five Dysfunctions of a Team. So I wrote The Five Dysfunctions, and then we wrote a book called Overcoming the Five Dysfunctions, which essentially gives you all of the tools we use and the exercises from our consulting practice, and a a manager can go out and do that on their own. And this assessment that you mentioned? The assessment you can find on our website at tablegroup.com, and you get the results right as soon as everybody figures it out, fills it out, which takes like 25 minutes, if, if that, yeah, less than that. Then they get the results back and they sit down around a table and they look at their scores and it shows you which questions people filled, like gave low scores. And they go, oh, clearly we have to talk about these three things. And and it's really liberating. It's like, wow, we knew that, but why did we never identify that? So that team assessment, and we've had almost half a million people do this assessment and it just tees up exactly the right conversation. And it helps them understand, is it trust that we're struggling with or conflict or all these things? So there are some things you can do in short order to really improve a team. Building trust and, and making a team better does not take months and years. It takes days and weeks. I know for me,
1: after reading the book and realizing work that I need to do on myself, going back to that trust piece, the, the first thing I started doing was being open and honest with the team about my own mistakes as a leader. Decisions that, that I awesome? made that were wrong, things that I thought we could do that I could improve on. And immediately, it totally changed the way the meetings were run and the communication that was happening in the meetings. And it's so easy as a leader to look at everyone else's mistakes and be like, why is this person not performing? Why are they doing this? And it's so difficult to say, this is where I screwed up because you're you're the leader and everyone looks to you and you don't think about the flip side of, well, if I'm not holding myself accountable and being vulnerable about these issues, then of course no one else wants to talk about it and be open about their mistakes. And of course these mistakes... They're going to fester. They get swept under the rug until they explode in terrible results for the
0: company. You know, and I will tell you, and it is, a, it's an amazingly liberating thing as a leader to go get, cause we tell people, don't let them see a sweat, you know, like the deodorant commercial, like you always have to be on. And, and the truth of the matter is they know you're sweating before you do. <laughs> they know. So the best leaders are the ones that raise their arm up and point at their armpit and go, check this out. <laughs> and people go, so, you know, and they're like, of course I know, you know, I know. And they're like, okay, I trust you. Let's talk about this. I will tell you this, as you're getting ready, you're, you're engaged. As a parent, I've learned that acknowledging when I'm wrong in front of my kids actually builds a stronger relationship with them. And my parents, God bless them, different, different generation. I don't remember my parents saying they were wrong very much when I was growing up. You know, it was kind of like, talk to, you know, be quiet, I'm right, I'm the parent. And my, I gained so much credibility when I go to my kids and go, I was kind of a jerk to you today. And they're like, yeah, I know. And that doesn't mean I do it like because I want to be their their buddy and win their popularity. I mean, I just have to convince them that I'll actually see it the way it is. We gain much more credibility by being vulnerable when we're leaders. It's crazy. Now, you
1: also write for people who are not necessarily in a leadership position. And you talk about one of the the most difficult positions or job killer is really feeling anonymous in an organization. What can we do to not feel anonymous in our organization
0: and not be that cog? A secondary part of our business, we help organizations to become more successful through their leadership teams. We are so bent on helping people not be miserable in their jobs. And every company out there is like, it's a war for talent. How do we get people to be more engaged? And what do we need? Better food the lunch? Or no, no, no. People at work need three things that are free. And if you give them those three things, they're going to bounce off the walls and love working there as long as you're paying them enough. You don't have to overpay. Overpaying people to work in a miserable job is a terrible idea. (laughs) Pay them well, but give them the three free things they need. And the first thing they need is to be known. It's like, and that sounds so silly. It sounds like this is a kindergarten lesson. But I work with leaders, and it's like, you have to take a personal interest in the employees who work for you. In their job, and in how they're doing, and in their personal life. And I don't mean if you're the CEO and you have a 1,000 employees, you got to know every 1,000. But how about the, your direct reports? Take an interest in them. I, if you're the executive vice president of Nike and your boss, the CEO, isn't interested in you as a person, you're not going to love your job. And I've, I've worked with professional football players whose the coaches are totally disinterested in them. And they're like, it's kind of a drag. I go to work and they don't really care. And and I don't care in any job. Your manager, and man, if your manager's manager does it, it's even amazing, Take an interest in their lives. It's free. We know in our jobs, has, nobody will deny that it makes a difference to them in their work. Everybody will say, oh, yeah, I love it when my manager's interested in me. And I'll say, well, why don't you do it for your people? I'm like, I don't know. I'm busy. And I don't know. It might be awkward. And, you know, we all live in California. So we think, well, if you make eye contact with a person at work, you're going to get sued. You know? <laughs> no. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are
1: driven. so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey.
2: We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed,
1: Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm.
0: Terms and conditions apply.
2: Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: You gotta love on the people and you've gotta do it by taking interest. So that's the first thing. Anonymity is a total job killer. I've worked in jobs where nobody cared about me. I don't care if it was the sexiest, most high-paying job in the world. I was miserable. The other two things are, then you have to let them know that their job matters to someone. And I don't care what their job is. I don't care if they're a a doctor or, you know, doctors and priests and firefighters, they already know, teachers, you know, that's a vocation. Most people's jobs, they don't know. The job of a manager is to go tell their employee, I don't care if they're the receptionist sitting at the front desk. Here's why when you do a good job, you make my life better or you make somebody's life better. You matter here and, and you're not like, telling them something that's not true. You're just being frank. Like your job makes a difference to people. Too many managers don't do that. They think, well, they know we told them at orientation. You no, know, our job as managers is to remind people constantly, Hey, I noticed you did this really well today. Do you realize who that impacts? And do you realize how that helps the firm and how much better I feel? Cause you do that. Nobody ever left a job and said, you know, if my manager told me one more time, why I made a difference, <laughs> I'm out of there. You know. <laughs> and the last thing is people just need to know If they're doing a good job, they need to have some way of assessing, not just the boss's opinion, but some sort of observable assessment, whether it's not always a metric, but some way of going, am I doing well? I don't know. Let's take a look at your output. Yeah, it looks like you're doing great. So if a person is known, they're reminded constantly why their job matters and their work matters, and they have some way of assessing their success, they're not leaving. If you give those three things to a person in a job, they're going nowhere. Unless they are so grossly underpaid that they just have to do it for their family.
2: Well, these three things certainly allow people to feel safe, and when you feel safe, you exactly. can focus on doing your job rather than looking keeping over your it shoulder, shoulder, wondering what's going on behind your back. And and the other thing about this is where technology is is at now and where it's going. We're continuing fi- having more and more people working from home and and not in the same quarters or in these we work spaces where they you might not even see people on your team for a few days though this may, all this technology makes you being able to work remotely well that's great and that's nice and you could go work at WeWork or at Starbucks and do your thing but without putting in the extra to reach out to talk to your team then you're You're off on an island, and it won't be too long before yourself or your teammates start to wondering, am I okay here? am I right am, am i am I doing the right things? am I safe am, am, is, it, is what I'm it, doing com, contributing to this project
0: yeah, it's a great point. I never thought about it safety. You're exactly right. You go to work and you feel safe because you were like, all this is here. I can actually come here and feel good about what I'm doing. And you said something about virtual workers too, and it's an interesting thing because I've always said we underestimate the challenge of virtual work yeah. just because technology allows you to communicate. There's something about human contact yeah. that makes everything better. But here's the thing. You, you just helped me understand something. And that is that if you have a virtual worker who you don't see, but you take an interest in their lives, you're constantly reminding them why their job matters. And you're, you're allowing them to understand if they're succeeding, they will be better off than that guy sitting the next or that gal sitting across the hall that you get to see yep. who you never ask them questions about their life. You don't tell them why it matters. In other words, I would rather people work together. But yeah. if you're going to work apart, then overdo those other things. And you're probably going to outperform those people that work together that don't do them.
1: For us, you're it's, certainly going to. It's starting all of those meetings with wins and not just company wins, but personal wins. An opportunity right. to talk about what's going on in your life, what you're excited about, what you accomplished over the weekend, what happened with your kids, all those little moments are just as important as the task at hand to that individual on your team.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm going to share something with you. I haven't written about this yet. We're going to do a podcast about it one of these days. But I think efficiency is overrated and effectiveness is underrated. Ooh, I and like- I think that people go like, we don't have time to do that stuff. <laughs> and it's like, what? Oh, yeah, we're going to we got a lot of meetings to go through. It's like, so you, you can't slow down to be human. And you don't realize that when you're human, they're going to do like 10 times the amount of work. And like, well, that's not efficient, but it's effective. And I almost believe you have to be intentionally inefficient in order to be effective. I would have we found that, that to be true in our company. And your point is what people
1: aren't understanding is the lack of their effectiveness leads to more meetings. Yep. They probably would need less would you- meetings if they were more effective. <laughs>
0: Exactly. Which is inefficient. I wrote a book called death by meeting, oh, okay. you know, and everybody thought it was. So you're going to say less meetings. And I'm like, no, no, no. More meetings, different kinds of meetings with really clear context, really compelling and interesting meetings. You're going to get more work done. And they're like, yeah, but I just want to spend less time in meetings. No, no, no. The bad meetings that you're having now are creating all this make work. Your effectiveness is going to go through the roof if you just have good meetings. So it's one of those things that, you know, you have to see the bigger picture. One of the things we talk about
1: here at the Art of Charm is leading from the seat that you're in. So even if you aren't a manager or you're not the leader, it is important for you to come into your job to be a leader from where you are. What in your mind makes that ideal team player and that ideal teammate?
0: So, yeah, most people are not CEOs and most people aren't the leader of their organization. But they might be the leader of their team or their department. They might be an informal leader. To be an ideal team player, there's three qualities you have to have. That's one of my most recent books. It's you have to be humble, which means it's about the team. It's not about me. Okay. Arrogance, self-centeredness, ego-driven is a killer on a team. You have to be hungry, which means I'm not going to do the minimum. If you ask me to do something, I'm going to go above and beyond. I'm going to figure out maybe I can do a little better than that, or maybe even a lot better than that. So hungry is that work ethic. And the third one is smart, but not intellectually smart. It's emotionally intelligent. It's common sense around people and how do my words and actions affect them. If you hire people, and I I believe this so strongly because we've been practicing this for 20 years. If you hire people who are humble, hungry, and smart, they are going to be wildly successful and they're going to figure out how to do the technical parts of their job. I mean, we're not talking about brain surgery or flying an airplane. There's technical requirements there. But most jobs, you take a humble, hungry, smart person. That trumps all of the technical skills that you think you need. So don't hire people that lack, that are ego-driven, lazy, or emotionally clueless. And it changes everything. We, when we wrote that book, I thought that would be my first book that people would say, dude, this is way too simple. I wasn't even going to write it. And people said, it's a book. That book is being used by so many people. They've changed their hiring criteria. I saw uh, there's a, a coach around here who puts Humble, Hungry, Smart on his, on his helmets of his kids. And there's a college that uses it for all their teams. Just this morning, I saw a photograph of a bunch of people who run a church who made a bracelet out of Humble, Hungry, Smart. And they said, we're gonna all be like this. There's something simple and, and, and whole about those three things. My 17-year-old son, who doesn't read my books generally, was in my office one day, And he saw the humble, hungry, smart on the board. And and I explained it to him. He goes, oh, dad, that's dope. (laughs) That's everything. He said, that's my friends. If you're humble, hungry, and smart, you're going to be a good friend. You're going to be a good teammate. You're going to be, that's everything. What's missing? He was like, what's missing? So humble, hungry, smart is how, if you can do that, you're going to be really successful in life.
1: That's number one, exactly what we look for in terms of teammates and, and promoting people within the organization. And I love that your son pointed that out because surrounding yourself with that as friends is just as important. He went
0: through his list of friends. He has a big group of wonderful kids. but And he said, those are my three favorites. Oh, my gosh, that's why. And this guy, oh, he lacks that. And this one lacks that. Now the good thing to do is if you're really good friends to go to somebody and be able to say, dude, I think you could improve in this area. That would really help you in life. But that requires a level of trust and vulnerability that people yeah. can actually hear that.
1: <laughs> now, your latest book, The Motive, has two very different leaders. And I would love to to wrap this on this concept because Johnny and I found it so fascinating and it, it really just dovetails with what we've been trying to do here on the show. What are these two leaders? And I think as the listener pays attention, you're gonna start to recognize some things in yourself that are really powerful.
0: Yeah, you know, people, this is my 12th book. Gosh, I never thought I'd write more than two. If somebody were to say, which book should I read first? I would say this one. Because it's not about how to be a better leader. It's about why you want to be a leader in the first place. And there's two primary reasons to become a leader. One reason to be a leader, the not right reason, is people see it as a reward. You know, I, I like to say when people are young, people say, go out and be a leader, You go to graduation speeches and people say, go out and be a leader, change the world. I'm like, no, (laughs) don't do it unless you know why you want to. And if you're doing it because you think it's cool and it's going to make you more sought after and feel better about yourself, that's a really bad reason to be a leader because you're not going to do the hard parts of your job. The real reason to be a leader is because you see it as a responsibility. It's a burden. And the economics of leadership are not very good. In other words, you're going to put a lot more into it for others then you're going to get out of it for yourself. And if you go into leadership with that in mind, fantastic. Then you're going to take on the hard stuff and say, yeah, this is my burden. This is my job. It's like being a parent. It's like, why are you going to be a parent? Because I think it sounds cool. Oh, no, 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 no. The cool parts come every once in a while. The hard parts come every day. And if you're doing it because you think it's cool, you're not going to want to do the hard parts. So the motive is as these two leaders Of two companies that get together to share ideas and the one guy is clearly motivated by ego and by himself and the other guy used to be and figured it out and is now motivated for the right things and they have a very edgy very conflict laden and very real conversation about this and there's some twists and turns and some politics in there and some surprises Uh, a lot of people that read my books say this is my best fiction it's also my shortest. I think that helps uh, <laughs> believer in short things. And I think that if a person is a young leader or any leader at all, this is the book to start with because what they can do is they can read it and say, Oh, I'm a little off. Cause even I, I can look at my career and say there's times I was a leader for myself and it didn't work. So it's not like you're binary, it's black or white. It's like, you can look at it and say, I need to adjust my, my motive. So it's, it's, it's just came out. And, um, Maybe this will be the first book that sucks. I don't know. <laughs> first readers tell me it doesn't, but I'm I'm waiting for that book.
1: Yeah, I doubt it. Johnny and I thoroughly enjoyed it and it Good. it really is I believe my evolution as a leader, you know, when you are thrust into a leadership role in your 20s, it's easy to fall into that reward-oriented mindset.
0: Absolutely. And And even society actually encourages that.
1: Absolutely. You you look at what's going on on social media and how we elevate people and celebrate people. It is oftentimes for that reward oriented leadership, but flipping it. And and this is something that Gary V preaches, too, that I'm a huge fan of is you work for your people. A good leader understands that each and every member of his team
0: he is responsible for. It is not the other way around. Right. And when we look at the famous, people often say, who's the best CEO in the world? I'm like, you want a famous one, right? <laughs> it's somebody who's not famous, who's doing their job really well and doesn't care if you know who they are. Exactly. Because we look at like the Silicon Valley or these people in media and it's like, no, 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 no. They're doing this for a different reason. And usually they implode. Usually it implodes. And the question is, you know, are you willing? And you talked about that before and people call that servant leadership. Right. I don't like the term servant leadership. You know why? Because it implies that there's another kind that's valid. (laughs) Right. That should be the only kind. It's like, so we're going to hire you to be leader. Oh, good. Maybe I'll be a servant leader. No, maybe not. Like, no, 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 no. (laughs) If you're not going to be a servant leader, you're not going to be a leader.
2: Well, it's, it's, it's so difficult with everyone's expectations and wanting the company to go well and shareholders. And then you're going to bring in media and the attention of everybody else of what you're doing and who you uh, are. How do you, I mean, that is just, that is ridiculous and to expect one person to be able to manage that and hold the company at such high regards and block out everything else. I mean, I, I just find that, ridiculous. And we've been hey, unfortunately- You guys, I have a question
0: for you. Yeah. Do you know who the CEO of Southwest Airlines is? Do you know what his name is? No. Isn't that awesome? Okay. This is a company. This is the most successful company in the last 40 years of American business. They have never failed to make money. It's an airline. Half of them had to get bailed out. They have never laid off employees for financial reasons. They have made money every time. Their customers love them. They've, they've survived... they don't say still don't charge for bags and they give which is a huge hit to their bottom line and you don't even know if gary kelly walked in your office right now and sat down at the table you wouldn't know who he was because you don't know what he looks like and let me tell you if he talked to you for 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 an hour you wouldn't know he would not make you he would not try to impress you yeah he is a fantastic leader and he does not want to be famous. That's exactly
1: you know, what I wanted to say. Well, and that was my point. We've been so fortunate to to start training these leaders of these massive companies. And they are not the egotistical driven people that you suspect. They are behind yeah. the scenes, elevating their teammates, looking at everyone else and trying to celebrate everyone else instead of running to the cameras oh, to tout their own success.
2: And I would say even they, they even hear anything about cameras or center attention or an interview, they're like, get that out of here. And uh, right. just, just something else about Southwest. Not, not, they, not only did it survive all that, they had a reality television show that, <laughs> that they survived. And you didn't see what your, you mentioned his name, Gary Kelly. I believe he wasn't running around on the, on the show. I like, no, he it was about the company and it was about their, Oh Yeah.
0: Exactly. Oh, when you said, "Yeah, their reality." When yeah. I first met them, I said to them, "Tell me about why you did that show." Yeah, and they said, "You know why?" And by the way, they they edited almost nothing out. Oh, it was it was it was raw. They said we trust our people. Amazing. To do things right, and we and 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 you know why they eventually decided not to do it anymore is because they said. It just got to be too much about drunk people on airplanes. (laughs) (laughs) They weren't worried about they weren't worried about how they came across. They said it just kind of got to be like, let's see another person throw up on a plane or try to hit somebody. But they were so raw about it. And you're right. It wasn't about the people at Southwest Airlines behind the scenes. The culture there is even better than what you've heard. They're not ego driven at all. Some companies have a reputation for being good, but then you go there and it's like, eh, I don't know. Like, and I don't know what Disney's like, but, you know, I always <laughs> say, like, you go to Disneyland, the happiest place on earth, yeah. and then you, you figure that Mickey's probably smoking a cigarette and punching out <laughs> Minnie behind the scenes, and, you know, I don't know that they're really all that happy because they really market that. Southwest is totally genuine, and it starts at the top.
1: Thank you so much Amazing. for joining us. You got us all fired up. Yeah. Your books get us fired up. So many great lessons there. One more time, where can our listeners find that great assessment and the rest of your books?
0: Uh, tablegroup.com. Tablegroup, like kitchen table. Tablegroup.com. You can find all of our stuff. And we, I've just started doing a podcast. I love being on podcasts. And we just started doing one, me and Cody, a friend, a partner of mine here. And um, if we have, it's called At the Table with Patrick Lincioni. And it's like this. I could sit and keep talking. It's just liberal arts and business mixed together. Love it. So thanks for having me here. This has been a blast.
1: Really, really fun. Likewise. Thanks for coming on and keep writing. We love your books, love the parables, and so many great lessons there for everyone.
0: Thanks, guys. God bless.
1: And we know if you're a listener of the show, you've probably heard us talk about our week long boot camp in LA, where we spend a week unlocking your charisma, growing those social skills, and boosting your emotional intelligence with our science packed lectures drills and exercises
2: well we've decided to close the boot camp this august why you ask because after 13 years and thousands of students we are ready for our next challenge we have started corporate training and military training in the last year and have taken a number of executive coaching clients on with the success of the podcast ceos entrepreneurs special operators and professionals look at gain an unfair advantage with personal year-long coaching from us. Social skills can be learned. And when you master them, well, it opens a whole new world of possibilities. So if you've
1: been on the fence thinking about taking a boot camp for a while, or just wondering what your results would be like, well, don't take it from us. If you're ready for more opportunities in your life, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp and apply now. Seats are extremely limited, and this is your last chance to get the most advanced social skills training on the planet, theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Can you do us and the entire Art of Charm team a huge favor? Head on over to iTunes and rate this podcast. It's how others find us. And of course, share it with your friends if you've gotten as much value out of it as we have enjoyed putting in. That's right. Head on over to iTunes and rate the show. It would mean the world to us.
2: The Charm Podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery and engineered by Sam Jay and Bradley Denim at Cast Media Studios in sunny downtown Hollywood. Until next week, I'm Johnny.
1: And I'm AJ. Have a good one.